Welcome back to the Wayward Podcast. Where there is a word, there is a way. I want to welcome you here today for another episode. I hope you all had an enjoyable Thanksgiving. I hope that you were able to celebrate with family, friends, strangers. And I hope you were able to enjoy a good deal of fun. And yes, especially some wonderful food. I had a very good week. My sister and I started off Thanksgiving morning with um, the community tart, uh, community turkey trot. It's a annual Thanksgiving 5K, and I think we had about over 2,000 uh, people sign up and attend. And uh, it's available to joggers and marathon runners, and they get to start off first, of course. And uh, it's and then you got your average walkers like myself who are doing it for the exercise right before we feast. And finally, you got the dog walkers. And it's always a great deal of fun when you watch the people bring their dogs out to these events and you see the dogs get all hyped up and excited and uh, to be around people and other dogs and just to be able to participate. Sometimes I think the dogs get a little bit more excited about it than the humans do. So, But it's a lot of fun. My sister and I, we walked for, I think, a little over two miles. I think that's what a 5K kind of translates to. And I felt pretty good about it. Um, last year, I remember I was feeling a little sore and achy, and I was ready for it to be done. But this year, I felt good. And uh, by the time we were done, I still had some fuel in the tank, and um, which was good because we parked a little ways away, and so we had to kind of walk further to get back to the car. So um, I was able to do that. But uh, yeah, it was good. It was fun, and uh, we had a good time. Dinner afterwards was good. My mom she cooked up an amazing feast. She usually does kind of the traditional fare. Uh, she did turkey, mashed potatoes, sweet corn, stuffing, green beans, gravy, sweet potato casserole, pickles, olives, rolls, and of course, pies. Um, I think there was an apple pie. I think my sister made that. Um, there was a pumpkin pie and there was a third one. I think it was a oatmeal pie. I'm not sure. I didn't have any of that, but uh, it was all good, so... Just overall, it was a very enjoyable meal and an enjoyable day and family to be thankful for. But Thanksgiving was not the only special event I was celebrating on Thursday. I was also celebrating my birthday. Um, I think about every three or four years or so, it kind of falls on Thanksgiving Day. And uh, it's always something extra special and Sometimes I joke about putting candles into the turkey, you know, and blowing them out. I've never really done that because getting candle wax on turkey just sounds bad. So, but anyways, it was a good day. I'm growing young. 
And also about two days after that was the 25th. And there I celebrated the anniversary of my baptism. And I remember I was baptized on November 25th, 1990. And it was right after my eighth birthday. And I remember that day that after I was uh, baptized at my home church, uh, Balsam Street Christian Church in Kingsford, Michigan, my family made the one-hour journey to Escanaba, where I visited my grandmother. Uh, she was in the hospital at the time, and she would actually pass away about two weeks later. But on that day, when I told her I had been baptized, she pulled out a brown paper bag, and she handed it to me. I opened it up, and on the inside was a blue NIV study Bible. So, And on the inside of the cover, she had written a passage from the opening paragraph of Philippians, I think it's chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. So that's kind of the memory that sticks with me when I think about baptism. And uh, or, yeah, there's, there's a number of memories that go along with that day. But just this whole, uh, these, uh, these three different events that just kind of happen all together, uh, within a few days of each other each year. Uh, this season, it always kind of helps to collectively set my mind and heart uh, up for the season that is about to happen next. And that is the season I think we are all beginning to find ourselves caught up in. And you can call that season Christmas, uh, because it is. Um, just for a number of reasons, uh, Sometimes it's the commercialism, sometimes it's the culture wars that kind of go on. But I guess sometimes I feel like the word Christmas kind of has taken on a whole lot of baggage and I don't know. Obviously, continue to use it, but the reason I bring it up right now is uh, just I find it helpful to try in order to kind of keep myself focused during this season I find it helpful to try thinking of this season primarily in the term of Advent. The coming, it is a, uh, yeah, the coming of Jesus Christ. And I find Advent to be a most precious season. It's great for, uh, oh, it's great for so many reasons, but Advent is the season in which we are able to concentrate on and anticipate and celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. Advent season, in a lot of ways, is like a metronome, It's which is a device that helps music, musicians find and steady and regulate their beat. Uh, the Advent season just really helps steady and restore our sense of rhythm. It helps get, get us into rhythm with what God is doing. And the Advent season, it just kind of sets, it sets, within, it sets within us redemptive rhythms that unfold through these Advent stories. And so in an effort to bless your rhythms in this season through the month of December, I am going to be covering the birth stories that we encounter in the Gospel of Luke. So today I'm going to start uh, 
on kind of a kind of kind of an initial one that kind of establishes the background of everything because for a story to start off well we must begin with its setting uh we must begin with an appreciation of its context and a feel for its unique time and place uh and hopefully that gives us a sense of the environment that god is desiring to take up residence in and restore. So the Advent season is shaped by a story of hope, but in Luke's gospel, the story is actually set in the days where there was very little hope. And after a brief introduction, Luke establishes the setting of time and place in chapter 1, verse 5. And he does it very simply by stating, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. A story of hope requires a time and place of hopelessness. And that's exactly what these days of Herod in the land of Judea were like. And it had actually been like that for quite some time. Now, in order for us to appreciate where Luke's story of hope is going, I think it's important that we first understand how this hopeless environment came to be. So, I would like us to briefly step back about 500 years or so into... Israel's past, and to see how it all eventually resulted in these hard and hopeless days of Herod. And to quote Charles Dickens's line in A Christmas Carol at the beginning, this must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. <laughs> so... All right, so let me take a drink of coffee real quick just to clear my throat. I am drinking Hawaiian hazelnut. And it is good. Okay, uh, let's first begin uh, in Exodus chapter 19. You don't have to go there, but if you recall in Exodus 19, the people of Israel, they had been delivered out of Egypt, and God eventually brought them to the Mount of Horeb, or the Mountain of God. And this is right before God gives them the Ten Commandments. But when they first show up at the mountain, God kind of lays uh, the whole plan out for them. And he says to them in Exodus chapter 19, that the people of Israel are supposed to be God's own people, a people of his own possession. They're uniquely chosen to be a kingdom of priests. That is their identity, and that is their purpose. That is what that, that whole idea is supposed to shape everything they do as individuals and as a community wherever they go in and whatever they, and whatever they do. A kingdom of priests. Instead, however, as many generations kind of go by, the people of Israel, they progressively corrupt themselves with idol worship and indifference to each other, exploitation, um, 
just all kinds of, you know, corruption going on. And in response, God eventually, gradually, brings a series of national consequences upon them. From raids of small local tribes to the conquests of great empires. In 586 BC, it was kind of the big one. The people of Judah, they were the last gathered tribe in the area. And because all the others had fell prey to the Assyrians. But here now the people of Judah finally fall to the Babylonian Empire, ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. And they destroyed Jerusalem, and with, with, with Jerusalem and the temple destroyed, the survivors were uprooted and transplanted to Babylon. And so, deprived of their homeland and bereft of their purpose, the survivors likely are now wondering, what is our world coming to? And what will God do now? And that's kind of an interesting question to think upon because even 500 years later in the days of Herod in the land of Judea, that question was still being asked. And you know what? Sometimes that question is still being asked today. And so we kind of find ourselves in familiar territory. It's a relevant thing to think about. What is the world coming to and what is God going to do now? Well, the exiles here, once they, uh, once they got to Babylon, um, they would spend a significant period of years living there, and they would, they would experience a whole uh, spectrum of emotions and feelings while living there. They would experience homesickness, of course. They would experience grief over their homes and their lands that were lost. They would experience guilt over the rebellious choices that had brought them to this moment. They would experience resentment towards the Babylonians who mocked them in this situation. And kind of like the stages of grief, uh, there was even a group of people who eventually accepted that their future was now bound to this foreign land. So that's kind of like that was going to be their status quo for a period of years. But eventually, another empire begins to emerge. You know them as the Persians, the Persian Empire. And after a few years, the Persian Empire came along, and they conquered the Babylonians. And once the Persians had secured control, they began to allow the people to begin returning to their homeland. Uh, Provided, of course, that they remained subservient to the Persians. And while there, while there was a, already that group of people who had decided uh, to stay in Babylon or in Persia, you know, they had been conditioned to the land and they had kind of, you know, made new lives for themselves. They, they chose to stay there. There was also a, a group of people who decided to return to, to their homeland. And so they went back, they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, they rebuilt the city walls and the temple, uh, even though it would not reflect the golden age era of Solomon, uh, the great city of Jerusalem and the great temple or anything. But still, you know, they rebuilt. They started again. And under the guidance of governors and a reinstituted priesthood, this remnant, they managed to survive for a bit. But after a while, they they would uh, regularly find themselves being challenged by 
the nearby empires that were rising up and trying to take over the world. And these great uprisings kind of mostly began when uh, a figure you might know as Alexander the Great decided that he wanted to unite the world uh, through Greek culture. And he, first he had to conquer the world, you know, through military might. And so he kind of uh, set out through these great conquests. He defeated Egypt. He defeated uh, the Persian Empire. And a couple, there's another groups. Um, I'm not sure, I think he got into India as well. And there's, you know, just um, all these little different areas. Yeah, Alexander the Great, he kind of amassed a pretty sizable and significant empire for himself. But we really don't know what it would have turned into because suddenly Alexander died at a very young age. And after he died, there was a period of war between Alexander's generals. They had a falling out and they were fighting over his over his empire. And eventually, after a period of war, um, his empire was eventually divided amongst them. And after, I think, uh, I think there was continual war between uh, two of uh, Alexander's generals. And these generals' names are Ptolemy and uh, I'm going to pronounce it Seleucus. And they both formed their own dynasties and they, they continue to fight each other and vie for power throughout Egypt and Syria and the Holy Land. And it went on for more than 100 years, I think, uh, you know, down to their descendants. And I think eventually the Seleucids won out. And when they when they won out, basically they had control of the Holy Land and they kind of went to work trying to um, um, overtake the Jews, the, the, the Jewish inhabitants there in the area. And. This kind of began a period where the Jews in the Holy Land started to be treated quite cruelly. That It ignited a whole 24-year revolt, a Jewish revolt, led by uh, the, the Maccabean family. And eventually, uh, this led to the independence of Judah uh, in the land in 142 BC. And the establishment of a, a kind of a Jewish royal family called the, the Hasmonean dynasty. And over time, this dynasty, even they began to rule in ways that were kind of a reflection of their former enemies, you know, with cruelty and suppression. And finally, in 63 BC, um, when these these wars just kind of continued on, uh, there were two brothers who were clashing over control of the dynasty. And eventually, I think one of them actually reached out to the Roman Empire asking them for help. But the Roman Empire, being what they were, they decided just to take the whole thing. And so they intervened. They they uh, they invaded. And uh, the general Pompey, he, he uh, came into Jerusalem and massacred a group of temple priests. He also defiled the temple, and this was an event that embittered the Jews for like almost a century. And so once again, the land of Judea was occupied and ruled by a foreign power. And while the Romans generally allowed the Jews to go about their lives, 
heavy taxation and security forces for quote-unquote peacekeeping. Uh, It all created a, a very suppressive atmosphere amongst the people. And then, over time, in 37 BC, the Roman Senate decided to hand control of the Holy Land over to um, a puppet king named Herod the Great. And like many rulers in those days, Herod was ruthless. He murdered much of his family to secure his rule. He also littered much of the territory with architecture, reflecting the culture of his Roman sponsors, like amphitheaters and pagan altars and monuments and official buildings and in another significant political act, Herod renovated and expanded the Jerusalem temple. And sometimes uh, uh, in history, it's referred to as Herod's temple. So he got his name on it. Um, so these were the days of Herod. And though he was, I guess what you could call a, a king of the Jews, faithful Jews in the land knew that Herod was not their friend. His rule was just another dark cloud adding to the depressing atmosphere, overcasting the land. And so between Rome and Herod, the land was hobbled by the same arrogance and political cunning and brutality that was characteristic of the rest of the world. And by the time we return to the period where Luke's gospel begins, The historical events of the past centuries are weighing dishearteningly heavy on the Jews. And any hope that is kindled in the occasional moments of relief was repeatedly snuffed out. And yet, Luke has a story to tell. And so, as he continues on in the text... He says that in the days of Herod, king of Judea, or king of Judah, there was a priest named Zacharias. In the same sentence that Luke writes the name of a king who brought much pain and sorrow to Judea, he follows it up with the name of a priest who has remained devoted to the same ancient ways of the Lord that are about to be reignited in the land. These days of Herod are only a starting point for Luke, because those days are not what this story is about. Hopelessness has had its day. A new day is about to dawn. This new story that Luke intends to tell is a salvation story. One whose hope comes from the, from the heavens into a broken world being made ready for what God is about to do. While we may wonder what the world is coming to, Luke is about to show us who is coming to the world. Even in the setting of the story, the Advent message speaks to us, unveiling the environment that is crying out for restoration. In this time and place where hopelessness has abounded, earth is about to receive her king. 
and with him the hope of new creation. So, in terms of application, what might we do with this? One suggestion I have is take time to examine your own environment. Whether we like it or not, we are partly a product of our environment, as well as a product of our own choices. Perhaps the challenge is to examine where in our environment are the factors and influences that are not aligned with the truth or reality of the gospel. Doing so might help us or others to see certain imbalances or toxic patterns that may exist. And if we have control over specific factors, we might also examine in what ways our choices may have helped enable those imbalances or patterns. The point is to be observant to what is going on. Discern the hidden designs that are shaping the environment you're living in. The underlying convictions and worldviews that are producing who you and others are becoming. Another application idea, and I know I'm kind of mixing the metaphors here, but check your own settings. I hate using the word programming because human beings are not machines, but maybe look at how are you programmed to react or respond to the factors and patterns seemingly defining your environment. Something I didn't mention when Herod, when discussing Herod's world was that there were several different Jewish groups in the land who responded to the corruption with varied responses. Some groups compromised and cooperated with the corruption. Other groups withdrew from the environment into the desert. Other groups launched defiant acts of hostility and rebellion. Still others intended to remain present while keeping faith with the law. And still others just had to live their lives, coping from one moment to the next. Each of these responses may describe our own from time to time. But the bigger question is, what sort of programming or patterns does the Advent story call us to embody in our daily lives and choices? So today I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider how you and your environment might be impacted if you received the story of Advent seriously. I want to thank you very much for joining me for this episode today on the Wayward Podcast. For This is our, our first episode of our Now in Progress Advent series. I hope you're able to tune in for the others. I hope you have a blessed day. And remember, where there is an Advent story, there is the way to hope. Fare thee well.